Before Jesus Christ, all of mankind was powerless against the power of sin. Separated from God by our weakness against the lies of the devil. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Reconciliation with a perfect, holy God was beyond our reach. We needed help. We needed a savior. But where would this help come from? The prophet Daniel wrote 500 years before the time of Jesus, 2,500 years ago almost to us. The book of Daniel chapter seven, he describes a vision, a vision of this Messiah, the savior. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus Christ is this Messiah that was foretold over 500 years earlier than when that was written. Today we share in his victorious kingdom and share in his triumph over the powers of evil.
Gospel of Matthew records the events of what we call the Last Supper. In chapter 26, it reads, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, you will see a certain man. Tell him, the teacher says, my time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. See, Jesus knew that he would soon be betrayed by one of his closest friends. And yet he didn't revoke his invitation to the meal. He didn't revoke his invitation to share in the Passover celebration. Into a new covenant and into a new promise. But they could not have possibly grasped the significance of what was about to happen. It's significant because the nation of Israel had been celebrating Passover for at least 1,500 years prior to that. Generation upon generation had celebrated Passover together. Now, these people in the room, these disciples of Jesus, wouldn't have been called Christians at this point. They considered themselves to be Jews by heritage, by tradition, they were Jews. And so the feast of celebration, the feast of Passover wouldn't have been anything different for them. But there's no way they could have grasped the significance because what they had been taught about what Passover meant was difficult to reconcile with this new covenant of Jesus. In the book of Exodus, in fact, chapter 12, this describes God's instructions to Moses about the Passover. It says this, Announce to the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they will eat the animal. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and every firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. The plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. See, Passover is the remembrance of Israel being freed from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Specifically, when the angel of death passed over the homes where the Israelites lived. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost caused the angel of death to pass over. So Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, was about to be sacrificed to save us from destruction. So, in Matthew, the apostle describes the, this new covenant of salvation and what this looks like. Although, again, they still could not grasp the significance of that moment. Matthew chapter 26 records this. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it, 
Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from this, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Now, after sharing this meal with them, Jesus and the disciples left the city and entered a place called the Garden of Gethsemane to rest and pray. Scripture actually records that at this time, Judas arrives with the chief chief priests and a mob to arrest Jesus, to take him for trial and judgment. Jesus, as prophecy had foretold, does not resist. He gives himself willingly in an act of sacrifice on our behalf. So we're now going to take communion together in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Now I'll explain to you how it works. At the crosses, if you've been here before, you know, but at the crosses we have, wine, uh, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers. And if you'd like to serve yourself or your family, you can take communion there at this time. You just dip the bread or the crackers in the juice and take it that way. Up front here, my wife and I will be up front, and we've got wine uh, and bread and crackers, and the same thing, you just dip it in and you take communion that way. But as the band plays on this next song, let's begin to move about and celebrate communion together. Battling 
sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. Sing that out with me. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. We sing hallelujah. Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church all the way back in the year 55, many years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he said this, for I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. So a question for you, think about this. If you were trying to convince someone of the power of a Messiah, the power of a savior. You are trying to convince somebody that they should literally risk their lives to follow this new Messiah. Would you focus on his death? Would you focus on the fact that he gave himself up in sacrifice and that he was treated brutally and subjected to all sorts of torture? I probably wouldn't. But the thing is, you have to imagine, if you were a Jew, if you were a Jew by heritage, now think about this church in Corinth. Corinth was a, was a town, city, 
that was a major kind of a seaport, trading port. People would come through all the time. So it was, a, it was a mishmash of people with all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different beliefs, okay? They were all over the place. And many of these people had come together to form this church, to follow this Messiah Christ here in this town. And this is who Paul is writing this letter to. But so this room, primarily, imagine you're this new church, this, this young, fledgling church that's in this city. You would be made up primarily of two groups of people. They would be Jews by heritage. Again, they would call themselves Jews. They didn't start calling themselves Christians yet. But they would have been very well aware and expectant of a coming Messiah, They would have said, we've been promised for generations all the way back from the beginning. We've been promised that a Messiah would come, a conquering Messiah would come, and he would ride in and he would deliver us from our enemies. And he would smite those who who were after us, and all of our enemies would be under his feet. We expected that. And so when they were told of Jesus Christ, they would have said, okay, he's here. This is cause for celebration. Wait till we see what he does to our enemies. Then the other people in the room would have been generally Greeks by heritage or Greeks by by culture. And they would have been very, very used to this, what's called a polytheistic worship system. Many, many gods. Picture on Mount Olympus, picture Zeus, Apollo and and Mars, the god of war, hurling lightning bolts and all kinds of destruction down on the enemies of their people. The only problem is you never knew who enemies of the people were. It was whoever they decided at that moment. But again, they were very well aware of what the wrath of a god could look like. And so when they were told about Jesus, this new Messiah coming in, they would have said, okay, We'll welcome him in. More power, the better. They didn't have a problem with that sort of understanding of a God or of a Messiah. The problem is they struggled with the idea of a servant Messiah. The idea of a Messiah who would give himself up to this kind of treatment for them, who would willingly sacrifice all that he was for them. Now, we have the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight, so we understand how that looks, and we've heard all kinds of teaching on why he did that and the necessity of it, but then it would have been something very much that they would have struggled with. You see, Paul, when he writes this, when he writes that, I'm going to set aside everything, all the theology, all of the doctrine, I'm going to set everything aside and simply focus on Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. He says that because he's not trying to convince anyone in this church of God's power and of God's wrath. He's trying to convince them of God's mercy. So as we go forward in time and in scripture here, Jesus is ultimately sentenced before Pilate. In the book of John chapter 19, it says, then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, 
I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, look, here's the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law, he ought to die because he dared call himself the son of God. The Gospel of Mark then records the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Chapter 15. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. A sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. And finally, the Gospel of Luke records the last moments of Jesus' life here on earth. Chapter 23. By this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone. And suddenly, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. Church, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a part of God's plan from the beginning. You see, God is a just God, but he is a merciful God. But he wouldn't be a just God if he laid out plans and laws and turned his back when those laws and plans were broken. There'd be no justice in that. And so a price had to be paid for our transgressions. And Jesus Christ paid that price. The sinless life of Jesus, our Passover lamb, was lived and given so that we, all of us, could receive that gift of salvation, of reconciliation with the loving Father and eternal life in heaven.
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recount the events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, each from a slightly different perspective. I'll now combine all four accounts to describe to you what occurred on that blessed day. Saturday evening when the Sabbath had ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women. Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he had said would happen. Come see where his body is lying. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and that he would rise again on the third day, fulfilling prophecy. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, 
Why are you crying, Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for, Jesus, for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. Peter and the other disciples started out for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Scripture records that Jesus spent another 40 days on earth afterwards, traveling around the region, teaching, preaching, showing himself to be alive and resurrected, and ultimately giving the disciples their final instructions. From Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says this, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And from Mark chapter 16, Jesus again says this, And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will be healed. And when the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached. And the Lord worked through them, confirming what they had said by many miraculous signs. Church, it's the power of the Holy Spirit given through faith in Jesus that allows us to accomplish that mission. Just as that mission was given to the original disciples and they were empowered to go into the world and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, that mission is not just for them at that time, at that place. That mission is for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, all of us who put our faith in this Messiah, in this Savior. That is still our mission as a church today. So why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ in itself such a cause for celebration on a day like this? We can focus on all the things that he did, but why the resurrection? Why is that key? I think the Apostle Paul says it best in this when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. 
And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And again, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in this world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life, a life in victory, a victorious life over the powers of death and darkness. See, death couldn't hold Jesus down, and through his resurrection, we are all, once and for all, set free from bondage and equipped in his righteousness to battle the forces of darkness, to do battle in his glorious light.
through the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus Christ, the price for our sins has been paid. We are no longer subject to the power and the lies of the enemy. We are no longer separated from our Father in heaven by our mistakes, by our choice, but we are reconciled with him. So no more subjection to the lies of the devil, no more judgment for our past mistakes. No more just drifting about with no purpose, no direction, no guidance. Thanks to Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection, we can come together in a place like this and a time like this and say, not today, Satan, not today and not ever. But without the power of the resurrection, promises like we see in the word in John 3.16 ring hollow. Most of you are familiar with John 3.16, but if you're not, it says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Without the power of the resurrection, there is no power in the gospel of Jesus. But we can have this confidence through faith in Jesus. So I have a question for you. Have you given your heart to Jesus? Do you have faith and declare that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, would you like to? See, a lot of people overcomplicate giving your heart to Christ. We're so used to rules, so used to structure and all these things that we need to do. And then the enemy piles on top of that saying, you need to get yourself together. You need to get your life in order. And then maybe you can think about presenting yourself to Jesus. But really, all he wants is your heart. He wants you who you are and where you are. Knowing everything you've ever done, knowing everything you ever will do. And he still poured out his blood for you wasn't for the person next to you or some other person far holier than you. He gave himself for you. And so the Apostle Paul actually writes in Romans, book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9. He makes it very easy and he explains, don't overcomplicate this. Here's what it takes to believe in Jesus Christ. It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That acceptance of what Jesus has done for you is all it takes to receive the Holy Spirit and the power over the grave. So if you'd like to accept Jesus, maybe for the first time ever in your life, again, All you have to do is declare and believe. It boils it down, declare and believe. There's a thing called the sinner's prayer that a lot of people say, oh, you have to say the sinner's prayer in order for this to work. That's not true. You simply have to openly declare that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. But 
I'm going to say a sinner's prayer right now. And if you want to recommit your life to Christ, or maybe for the first time ever, say yes to what Jesus is doing in your heart. Say yes to that invitation that he has planted there long ago and continues to stir up in your heart. And if you would like to say that, you can just repeat this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins now and invite you to come into my heart and my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So if you're here and you said that prayer for the very first time, congratulations. It is a glorious day for you. And I promise you will never forget that moment. I think back to when I first gave my heart to Christ in a church service very much like this. And my response was not, I want to stop and talk to somebody. I want to share this. I want to find out more. My response was, how quickly can I get to the door and go sit in my car and think about what just happened to me? because I knew something very real happened in my heart. Some people will be just like that. And if that's the case, you can reach out to us by email later. You can come back next weekend. We would love to talk to you. And I, and I understand it's something that God is doing in your heart and that can be a difficult thing to reconcile. But if you're willing, we have prayer team in the back, myself, my wife, our entire worship team, the choir, everyone would be willing to talk with you and to help you understand what has just happened in your heart and in your life. You will be changed forever. We have a third option that you can do all of the above. In the back, there's a, on the black bench back, the back table, there's a, a book that's called the New Christian's Handbook. It's a green book. It's kind of a thick book, more of a bathroom reader, if, you, if I can say that on Easter. <laughs> Feels wrong, but that's what it is take it with you. It'll answer so many questions about what just happened. Maybe you're not even in that place, but you just want to know more about Jesus. Please feel free to take one of those. That's our gift for you. But as the worship team plays on, they're going to finish out this song. Let's do this in just great celebration of what the power of the resurrection means. And through that power and through what Jesus Christ did for us, we can say with all confidence, he is not here. He is risen. So as we wrap up our Easter service on this Resurrection Sunday, I want to ask everybody to stand with us as we finish this song. And as we finish this song... This is a song of celebration. This is a song of joy and hope, all of the hope that we will ever need in our life because the truth is he is a risen savior. He's not hanging on the cross. He hasn't been hanging on the cross for a really long time. He's been out there battling for each and every one of us every single day so that we can go and live with him in eternity when he calls us. So let's sing this together in celebration of what Jesus did for us. a battle, a war between death and life. There on a tree, the Lamb of God was crucified, but he went on down to hell and took